that Jesus said this. He said, by this, right? So he is, he is laying out a distinguishing mark for Christians. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. They, they will know that you follow Jesus Christ. They will know that you are saved, that he is your Lord and master. By this one thing, by this all people that you will... All, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it's interesting because the unbelieving world, and we see this repeatedly in media every single day, they don't typically accuse Christians and true believers of love. Right? We generally read those accusations as Christians being bigoted or judgmental or even hateful. And they do this because we don't blow around with the winds of culture. We don't change God. We're beholden to a God who does not change, who has spoken in His Word, and we remain firm and grounded in that. And that is hard to understand to a world that denies God. And that sometimes seems new to us, but that is not a new phenomenon. At all. The controversies between the church and the unbelieving world existed and were really the same in the first century Roman Empire as they are today. The question that we should ask ourselves is not really whether the unbelieving world has changed over the last 2,000 years, but have Christians changed? Has the church changed? Have we incorporated things into the church that have drawn us away. Because despite its disagreements with our beliefs, does the world still marvel at the Christian community from afar? Do they still look at the church and, and look at us in shock by how we love each other, how we serve each other, how we meet all of each other's needs, how we take care of each other and look at us and say, that is so different than anything that we've experienced. Really, we can ask, do we stand out in the way that Jesus Christ said that His followers would stand out? We have to remember that there was a time when the New Testament was truly new. And as the Gospel spread into these new regions and new communities, there was a real recognition among believers as they came to Christ as their Lord that to love God, to please God, meant loving each other. You see this in the early writings. The Greek satirist Lucian, he, he wrote in the second century, and his whole writing was mocking both the philosophers and all of the religions that existed in the Greco-Roman Empire. He was an unbeliever. He was really a terrible, immoral man. But when he looked at the Christian church, he wrote this. He said, it is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, he's referring to Jesus, their first legislator has put it into their heads that they are brethren. He couldn't get it. This group of people, these Christians, acted as if they were a family. They acted as close as blood relatives. And that made no sense to an unbeliever. Tertullian, who was a Christian, wrote and lived from A.D. 160 to 225. 
In suffering under Roman persecution, he wrote an apology, not to apologize for Christianity, but to defend Christianity against Roman persecution. And he defined the Christian community this way. He said, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Now, historian Rodney Stark He categorizes all of this in his book, and he says when the New Testament was new, these were the norms of Christian communities. That was true when it was new, but we know that we live in a post-Christian world in the West. It's not new anymore. People have heard, they have either accepted or rejected the truth, but it's not new. We have been blessed. We have lived and worshipped for hundreds of years with little to no persecution. And along with our freedom, we have experienced great affluence. And in times of great prosperity and freedom, what does humankind do? It, it becomes, we become filled with a sense of accomplishment in ourselves and pride and greed, which motivates so much of what goes around us. That's really no different than you see in the Israelites if you follow the Old Testament. But we begin to create or to recreate a God in our image. Not the biblical God, but a God who can approve of what we do. And we no longer submit fully to Him. We're actually more in tune with psychology than we are with theology. And the psychologists have proposed that human beings can only act out of self-interest. Even love can only be expressed out of our own self-interest. And I can tell you, you have seen that creep into the Christian church. You can go and listen to sermons and talks that go something like this, and I'm guessing everybody's heard something along these lines. If you must love your neighbor as yourself, then your starting point needs to be to learn how to love yourself so much more. And if you can love yourself and please yourself, someday that will spill over and other people will see how you love them. But that's not the biblical message. Mankind's problem is not a lack of love for self. But unfortunately, that way of thinking, it does feed our selfish, sinful desires. And we see that love of self crowding in to the church. Now these psychologists, they study this, right? And I want you to consider this case study from 1973. That's going a ways back. But I would argue it's even worse today. These were secular psychologists. These were not Christians. But what they did in this case study was they took groups of men who were in seminary studying to become priests. And they went into these groups of men and they told them that they would be assigned to give a lecture on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't think I have to explain that, but the the Good Samaritan, serving people, right? Helping those in need. That was the topic of their lecture. Now, as... The time grew near, the experiment was they would come in, and they didn't do this in groups, they did it individually, but they would come in and tell the individual, actually, the lecture has already started. The people are there and they're waiting, and you're late. You're late. We gave you the wrong time. You need to get over to this building on the other side of campus and give your lecture on the Good Samaritan. Now, as they went, they had to pass through a doorway into that building. And leaning against that doorway was a victim. This person was moaning, coughing, had obviously been beaten, 
was in desperate need of help and was reaching out to them. And you can probably guess the outcome or I wouldn't be telling the story, right? They didn't help. They were late to give a lecture on the Good Samaritan. Their self-interest in getting there, getting on the platform, delivering that lecture, took precedence over their desire to actually enact out the parable of the Good Samaritan that they had just studied. And they passed that individual by. That sends a stark message to the unbelieving world. And we have to ask ourselves repeatedly, always, how different are we? How does our self-interest affect us? Do we truly serve as Christ's ambassadors to an unbelieving world as we are called to do? Do we show His love, His compassion, His character to the world? We saw last week in 1 John 2.3, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. We'll see that evidence in our life. Jesus said in John 13.34, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will use this weak vessel standing here this morning to speak it accurately and truthfully. That you will open the hearts and minds of people by the work of your spirit. That our lives might be transformed. That we would learn to love as you loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to continue our study in 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 7 to 11 this morning. Chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Now, John is actually moving here, making a transition. He's, He's moving from this encouragement, this instruction to obey all of Christ's commands. And we saw last week that what that meant was those commands are embodied in the perfect life of Jesus Christ, always doing the will of God, as well as in all of his teaching. And now John is shifting. He's going to focus on a very particular commandment. Now, we've talked about these different tests so that we can know that we believe that we're truly saved. Last week, it was the moral test. It was the test of obedience. And I should have noted that these tests, and if you've read ahead in 1 John, and I encourage you to do that, they will come up. This is a repetitive view of these tests, so you don't have to hit every point with each one of these, because we're going to see love over and over again in 1 John. But now he's applying the second test, the second test of faith. This is the social test, the social test of love. Because the highest duty of any Christian towards others is actually love. And that love, if we have that for others, it provides evidence to us of our salvation, our ultimate assurance that we are in fact children of God, that we are benefactors of His promise of eternal life all through the saving person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's read our passage. We're actually going to start in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 
and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now verse 6 is where we closed last week. But you see the transition here. John has just given this exhortation, this command, this encouragement that if we truly abide in Jesus Christ, if we are saved by His blood on the cross, if He is our Lord and Savior, that we will walk in the same way in which He walked. In other words, like any true disciple or apprentice, we will live our lives, every thought, every word, every action, every deed, we will live in a way to try to mimic and copy our Master. And John then shifts, and you see this shift in how he opens it. He opens it, beloved. Beloved. Love is the topic at hand. And John is writing to Christians. He is writing to the church. And he is bonded to them by their mutual love for Jesus Christ. They are in him. They are one family. And he loves them. And he is concerned about their faithfulness. And he is concerned to give them assurance. The social test of love that he is going to lay out, it provides that you will know with certainty that you've been forgiven and reconciled to God, that you have received eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when you find yourself actually loving your brothers and sisters, other Christians for whom Christ died. It's a powerful thing because it's actually not natural. It is not natural to love people that are different from us, that sometimes rub us the wrong way. We know that happens in every family, including the church, or people who don't share our same interests or don't communicate the same way, don't dress like we do, don't look like we look. But within the true church, everybody shares the most important thing in common. We are born again in Christ, and we are members of one body. One family. And what should always ring true in our mind is that if Jesus suffered and died for that brother or sister, how can we not sacrificially love them? They were worth enough for Him to go to the cross, but not enough for us to do something nice, to show love. Our Lord died for them. He was raised for their eternal life. We must love them. 1 Corinthians 12.27 reminds us, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're all part of one body. We don't exist just as a collection of individuals anymore. So John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. You see, he'd been emphasizing, as we saw, the Christian obligation to be faithful to God's Word, to obey all of His commandments, all of them. And now we shift to this one in particular, and it's not new, right? This is not new revelation. He's not going to be laying out something that they've never heard before, they've never thought of. It's only available to an apostle, and here it is, I'm going to reveal this to you. It's not that. No, no, this is just a reminder of what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be saved by His shed blood on the cross. 
You will see if you look in these first two verses in our passage, John uses the word commandment four times and never tells us what it is. Four times and never tells us what it is. But verses 9 through 11 make it clear that the command is love. In fact, the rest of the letter makes it clear as well. The command to love is most definitely not new. It existed right from the very beginning, right from creation with Adam and Eve. You see it played out through the Old Testament narratives, but you see it most definitely as a command in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is in fact the verse that Jesus referred back to, right? In Mark 12.28, he was asked by a scribe, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? And we know that Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy 6.5 to give him the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. But then he adds, Mark 12.31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Why? Well, which commandment was the most important? The answer is simple. Every single one of them. Every single one of them summed up in the command to love God and love neighbor. And since the topic of our passage is on the love of neighbor, let's just take a look at that. If you look at the last six of the Ten Commandments, you can find these in Exodus 20, 12 through 17. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Do you see that if you truly love your neighbor, that you will follow every single one of the last six commandments? And if you truly love God, you will follow all ten of the ten commandments. Jesus told him everything that God speaks is important. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 13, 8-10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And John can say to this church that this is what you've heard all along, right? You know this. It's not new. He can say that because he has fulfilled the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we, we skip that last part so often today, but we aren't just told to go out and, and sort of proclaim some sort of love message and get people to loosely accept Jesus. That's actually not what that command is. It's to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel in its fullness, Christ, His life, his death, and all that he has commanded. And so John can rightly say in this letter, even to the Gentiles who are reading it, who don't know the Old Testament, 
that this is not a new command, but it is, as he says, the word that you have heard. Because this is the gospel. Because love, perfect, sacrificial love, was embodied in Jesus Christ, and he is the gospel. Think back to those first four verses of this letter. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you simply cannot separate walking with God and obeying Him and loving Him and loving others. They go hand in hand. That is why Paul can say, love is the fulfilling of the law. So it's old. And yet John writes in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, now how can this be? How can it be an old commandment that is not new? And in the very next line, it is new. The command to love is not new. But it becomes new in the incarnation of the Son of God. In the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's new in a few ways. It's new in a very literal sense in that the old commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But what did we read this morning in our lead-in? Jesus actually takes this up. John 13, 34, I'll read it again. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And if you were going to emphasize or underline something in your Bible, it's this next phrase, just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. Jesus goes on and He elaborates this in John 15, 12 and 13. This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We value our lives more than anything else. But Jesus gave up His for those He loves. He takes this command to love to new in unsurpassable lengths. No longer are we to love as we might love ourselves. That's not enough. We are to love as Christ loved. And this is a love that embodies the ultimate sacrifice. It embodies humility. Great humility. We see that love manifested perfectly in the person of Jesus. The eternal Son of God, the Creator of all, took on a human nature. He lived with the weaknesses of us, of His creation as a man. And then He suffered and died at the hands of those that He created and sustains moment by moment in life who were living in rebellion against Him. And He did that because He loved those who would be saved. That is something worth pondering and meditating on because it's hard to grasp. Acts 17.25 says, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every breath is a gift from God. And what does that tell us about His love? He suffered at the hands of those who He created and those who He kept alive minute by minute. He sustained the life, gave every breath to the Roman soldiers standing there pounding nails through His flesh. So that he could save his people. We love. And we love like that. 
you see the humility in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It's the eternal Son of God who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His death, it's one thing. Let's take a look at another example of what His love looked like. And in this, I want you to think back to the upper room. John 13 is where we're going. Think back to the upper room. That's the final supper. This is where Jesus issues this command to love others as He Himself loves. And in this upper room, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, whom John 1.3 says all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. What did He do? We see this in verses 3-5. through five. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, all things, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the very one that all of humankind, every man around that table had followed him for three years, remember? But everyone should be falling on their face in front of him in worship. He is the Creator. He is the Son of God. And instead, And he takes off his outer garment. And he embarks on a task that is not even fitting for a Hebrew slave. To love as Christ loved is to love without any concern for yourself, for your reputation, for your time that you have to give up, even for what someone deserves. And that that is an important thing because we often think that person doesn't deserve this. But I want to remind you of one part of that story. I want to focus you in on it. We're not going to pick it apart or read all of it. But if you were to jump down to John 13, 21. We started in verse 3. You jump down to verse 21 and you see Jesus begin to warn that one of those 12 is going to betray Him. You jump to verse 27 and He says to Judas Iscariot, what you are going to do, do quickly. Satan fills Judas and in verse 30, Judas immediately went out. So what do I want you to see? I want you to not miss the order of that story and what it tells us about service and about love. Because you remember, I hope, when we were back in Mark, Judas always had the opportunity to repent, and he did not. Jesus knew that he wouldn't. But don't miss the order in that story. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. He humbled himself to that extent. That is the model for us. You have to see that the command to love actually is not limited. We don't get to place any limits on that. You showed up someplace and someone gave you a look that dismissed you or that you didn't like. Love them. So what? Love them. Well, this person seems to be ignoring me. I keep reaching out to them, and and they just ignore me and walk right by me at church. Serve them. 
That is what you're called to do. Love them and serve them. I'm not coming back because I didn't get the attention that I think I deserve. They weren't as nice to me as I thought. They didn't reach out to me afterwards. Nobody appreciated what I did. Well, be thankful. Be extremely thankful for God's grace in your life and that you aim and serve to please Him and Him alone and not get the appreciation or accolades for man because you know that your reward is in heaven and there is only one judge and one ruler and that is Jesus Christ and you aim to please Him. What good is appreciation for mankind? The command to love is just, it's not limited by what others do to us. And it's also not limited by who they are. That is an additional way that this command is new. Keep in mind, we don't get to pick and choose our families, right? Some people would probably like to, but we don't. We're born into a family. You also do not get to pick and choose your new, eternal family. Those that you will spend all of eternity with. God chooses. You don't. But you are to love every one of them. You see Jesus extend this greatly. Because all people are created in God's image. And they are deserving of love. And you remember that the the Jews that he is writing to, it's largely a Jewish audience still. In their day, sinners were outcasts. They were unclean. They were absolutely not deserving of love. And Gentiles, Gentiles were created for one purpose in their world. They were created to go to hell. That was it. That is a Jewish view at that time. But then you look at Jesus and he says to them, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost in Luke 19.10. And then you look at his followers. He calls Matthew a tax collector despised by his people as an apostle. He dined with Zacchaeus in his home, an outcast, a schemer, a thief, a tax collector. He robbed his own people and served the Roman Empire. He listened to and he taught women who were not valued at all in that society. They were his followers. And ultimately, he extended salvation to the Gentiles. You can go back and look at that great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all people. That again in Acts 1.8. You remember the scribe who asked him what the greatest commandments were, or really the greatest commandment. He wanted to be able to follow it, declare himself saved. And Jesus answered him. And so he responds in Luke 10.29. He says, It says, desiring to justify himself, his own behaviors. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants that to be a limited list of people that he must love that way. And Jesus answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we can recall that the Samaritans were a mixed race of Jew and Gentile, and they were hated and despised by the Jews. They wouldn't walk on the same street as them. They wouldn't walk through their territory. Jesus made it clear. You don't get to choose that way. You must love everyone that is in need that you come in contact with. You must show them compassion without regard to their social status or how they differ from you. He illustrates this point again in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Look at how you are called to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church is a family. We are called to love one another as Christ loved us. Whether we realize it or not, whether we're honest with ourselves, I guess I should say, or not, we have a very hard time loving as Jesus loved. You hear things like this, I I can't love that person because of what they said to me or what they did to me or to my family or to my friends. Really? Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Well, I, I can't love that person until he realizes what he has done and apologizes for it. He must realize it and apologize to me for it. And then, then I can love him. I can forgive him. Really? Because hanging on that cross... Whipped and beaten and bloody and battered and gasping for breath and in agony, humiliated and suffering, Jesus looked down at the very crowds who were calling for him to be crucified and mocking him, and he prayed this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. We can remind ourselves that when did he die for us on that cross? After we cleaned ourselves up and fell on our knees and acknowledged God and repented of our sin? No. No, not at all. He died for us while we were still sinners, lost in our sin and rebelling against God. Romans 5.8. The commandment to love is not just new because Jesus instructed it, though He did. It is new to people, and it's new to us every day as we study His Word. Because we have seen it in the life of Jesus Christ. That is why John says it is true in Him. This commandment, this perfect love is fulfilled and it is embodied in Him. In His life, in His ministry, in His death, in His resurrection, and in His ascension where He sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. See, perfect love had never before, never before been demonstrated until the world witnessed the love poured out by Jesus. But here is where it is really new. Really, really new. Because it is embodied in those who follow Jesus Christ. That is why John can say in 1 John 2.8 that the commandment is true in Him and in you. If you are a believer. That is why this is 
a way that we can get assurance. Because when you truly repent of sin, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you believe in Him, when you confess with your mouth that He is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, when you believe in Christ alone for your salvation, knowing that it is by His person and His work, His death, His resurrection, that you are saved, when you do that, an amazing thing has happened in you. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if you believe, you have Him. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And it is the Holy Spirit that keeps us humble. He draws us always to Christ. He convicts us of our sin and drives us to repentance daily. And He brings forth spiritual fruit. Galatians 5, and 23 tells us what that is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the most important of that fruit is love. Because out of love flows every single one of those other attributes. And that is one of the Holy Spirit's greatest gifts in the life of a Christian. Romans 5.5 God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so you can see that John can say, This is a new commandment that's an old commandment. It's old because it existed from creation. It's bound up in who God is. But the Old Testament saints did not have Jesus Christ as a model to follow. They could not follow Him. And they did not have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They struggled with this. They weren't equipped in the same way that we are. But it is new because that love is manifest in Jesus Christ. It is poured into the heart of every believer. Now, will we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. We know that we won't do it perfectly. But we will be transformed on our conversion and we will grow and we will be conformed to the image of Christ throughout our lives. Romans 8.29 tells us that. We will struggle. John notes that all of this is possible because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. We know that Jesus is the light that he's referring to. We've looked at that several times. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We live today in the, what we call the already but not yet period of time. Meaning the kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus' first Coming, but it won't be consummated until he returns again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. But the darkness is passing away, though we don't always see that around us. Sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that everything is going darker and darker and darker. But we might just go back and remind ourselves from books like Jeremiah and others that God builds nations up and he tears them down. Judgment comes upon people for their rebellion. And that has been true throughout all of time. But the darkness is passing away. 
And we just need to pray that it passes away much more quickly. We need to long for the promise in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Pray with the Apostle John in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We want it to pass away. But John closes this out with an application of this social test of love to the lives of those who claim to be believers. And as he applies this, you're going to see this continuation of the theme of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Light and love go together. Hate and darkness go together. And you're actually in one camp or you're in the other. You can't be in both. There's actually no neutral position in between the two. You're in one or the other. And he says in verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now we have seen, if you go back to chapter 1 verse 6, that we cannot claim to follow Jesus and walk in the darkness. That would be a lie. We are not his. We're not saved. In verse, chapter 2, verse 4, we cannot claim to be saved and disobey His commandments. And I just will restate that a little bit in case you weren't here for that sermon. That is not a work your way to heaven thing. But we should see evidence in our lives of a desire to obey Christ and repent when we disobey Him. Now the self-deception, though, is different. It's a claim to be a follower of Christ and yet be filled with hate. And it doesn't work that way. Because to have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to love God and fellow human beings, especially Christians, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. You remember, Jesus died for them. He's your Lord, and He died for them. He loved them enough to die, but I can't love them. Do you see how absurd that sounds? I follow the Lord Jesus. He's Lord of all of my life. He is my master. I bow down before Him. He went to the cross. He died for that person, and I can't stand Him. That's an oxymoron. And that is what John is pointing out. To claim to be a child of God. To claim to be saved by Him. And remain in the condition of hating a brother or sister. It's a meaningless claim. It is the deception of a deceitful and wicked heart. The Apostle Paul captures this same thing in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 2 and 3. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. All that other stuff means nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I go to martyrdom, if I martyr my own life, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Do you see how important love is as an evidence of a transformed heart? John continues in verse 10. The other side of this equation. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. We know that abiding in Christ, in the light, is the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful gift. And to, what he's saying is, to love your Christian family is the natural offshoot of being in Christ, of being saved. It gives you the evidence that you are saved, that you are His. 
It's not telling you, you know, fake it until you make it. Go out and try to love people even though you don't and you can love your way right into heaven. It's impossible. You'll never be able to achieve it. Just like you can't obey your way to heaven like we covered last week. It is an evidence of being saved. It is a way to test yourself. If you're in, if you're obedient to Christ, if you love your brothers and sisters, then you're in the light. It gives you an evidence of your transformed heart. It tells you that you are indeed a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. The Holy Spirit indwells you. But then John sort of points that it does two other things. And it's embodied in this last clause. In Him there is no cause for stumbling. Because if you truly love people, you are not going to sin against them. They're going to come first. You're going to be self-sacrificing. And the flip side of that is, the other thing that it does, if you truly love people, you are not going to cause them to sin. You are not going to bring temptation into their life. You're not going to invite them to where they should not go. You're not going to plant seeds of doubt in their head. A truly selfless love puts others first. But remember this. Now, this is important for us in today's world. It puts their eternal salvation first and foremost. That's important because the world, and even those who have claimed some sort of spirituality or religion, they have redefined what love means. They've redefined love to mean tolerance and acceptance of sin, of any sin, and of any view, and any belief. And that is not what we're called to love. We have to make sure that our love is grounded in our love and obedience of Jesus Christ as Lord. Our love for others never just serves to approve of everything that they do, right? That's psychology speak, right? Look for approving language and you hear that all the time. But that's not the Christian's love. We, we don't approve of everything to give temporary happiness to people that serves no useful purpose. The Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, we preach not to fill our churches, but to save sinners from hell, and the two are not the same. Right? You can fill your church by making people feel good, but you won't spend eternity with those people. The two are not the same thing, and that applies to how we're called to love others as well. It is a love that honors a holy and righteous and just God and calls people to repentance and faith. That is how our love needs to look. It needs to meet people's needs. We need to love them. But ultimately, we need to believe, bring the unbeliever to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But as it relates to our Christian brothers and sisters, it's serving and loving one another. It is bearing with each other, with our differences. Putting up with those things that annoy us and realizing that that's a problem with us, not with them. It is forgiving, even without an apology. It is holding each other accountable. As painful as that can be sometimes. It is grieving with one another. It is celebrating with one another. It is lifting each other up and encouraging one another. And ultimately, it is walking side by side 
and helping each other grow in Christ and Christ-likeness. In verse 11, John closes this out, saying, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, as we wrap this up with this last verse, I just want to make one clarifying point. We are only looking at two options, not three. Only looking at two options, not three. Because in our way of thinking, we love to assume a neutral position. We see things like, I don't love that person, but I don't hate them either. So I'm okay. I'm good. No, you're not. There's two positions. This is binary. That is a false neutral. It's not an option. A lack of love is hate. That is what he's referring to here. And hate, a lack of love for a brother and sister in Christ means that you are in darkness. Now at best, what that means is that you have broken fellowship with God. You need to repent. And you need to get right with God. But at worst, it means that you are not saved at all. That you are living a lie. But John tells us, it gets worse. That condition of the heart, it escalates. You walk in darkness. You actually begin with hate and you continue to live a life apart from God, a life marked by sin. And sin is never idle. We don't manage the sins in our life like we can just do this little thing over here. No, it grows because it is a heart condition, not recognizing the offense that that is to God. It always grows. That's why we have to kill it. That's why in the words of the Puritans, we need to mortify our sin, right? By turning to Christ and repentance and faith. But he says it gets even worse. You continue to walk in darkness. Your heart is hardened by hate, a lack of love. You become blind. You don't even know where you're going. The hatred distorts your view of people, of events, of what is said, of what is not said. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know of what they stumble. They wander around with no sense of direction. God is light. He illuminates where to go. But they're in darkness. John Stott summarizes this this way. He said, Hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. See the order in that. Because love sees straight and thinks clearly and makes us balanced in our outlook and our judgments and conduct. We love people. We are not going to easily take offense that way. There's no upside in it for us because we only aim to please our Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross for those he loved. Now a final word, just so you're not disappointed as you go out into the world and you hear all this talk about love that's not based on Christianity. You simply cannot approach an unbelieving world and tell them or expect them to love as Jesus Christ loved. To fulfill this command, to love in that way. Because the non-Christian can try and they can do good things. They might desire to be in control, 
But they're really just blown about by their surroundings and their circumstances, their fleshly desires, their self-interest. Psychologists have it right in that case. So you must know Jesus Christ, and He must know you. You must be a child of God. You must experience the true change. And And that is why this is a test. And it's not a test of mastering a series of facts that you can recite back to somebody so that you can show that you're a Christian. No, what John is pointing to in the last test and this one is that it is exemplified by your life. Whether you love. Whether you have a growing love for God and His people. When you repent of sin, when you truly believe in Christ, you are a new creation. We're told that in Him, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? We are told that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are going to both will and work for His good pleasure. We will have the desire to do the things that please Him. And we will have the ability to carry that out. Philippians 2.13 gives us that promise. We'll close with this. Ephesians 5, 8-10. That's just a wonderful reminder. For at one time you were darkness. Every one of us. We weren't born saved. At one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So if you know Jesus and He knows you, let the world see that by how you serve each other and how you love each other, how you come alongside one another. And if you find that that empty void in your heart with no love in that way, if you are in darkness, He is calling to you to repent and believe, to take the narrow road. But it is a beautiful path and the destination is great. So that you can be forgiven. So that you can have eternal life. To join the church. Be part of the family of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've spoken clearly. That you have given it to us in so many ways. Through the lives of early saints, through the instructions of Jesus, through the writings of the apostles, that it would be impossible to miss if we approach you with an open and repentant heart. Lord, we know that you are sovereign. You are holy. We know that we are not. We thank you for sending your Son who would humiliate himself the creator of all things, come and die for us. Stand and intercede for us today to serve as our living God, to never leave us or forsake us. Provide us that strength to resist temptation if we will just turn to Him. Lord, we pray that you will take these hearts of stone of ours and put in those hearts of flesh. Hearts that will love sacrificially. Hearts that will love truly. Hearts that will love in all humility. Hearts that seek and desire 
who obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray especially as we move into this next few days where we have the opportunity to show that love so often to those who will not darken the doorway of your church. That they see in us that type of sacrificial love that can only come by mimicking your Son. Lord, that they will see that love poured out on their children, that love poured out into service, that love poured out by our kindness and generosity. God, please help us to be the light of the world that you have called us to be. And let the world see when it looks upon your people something different, a people marked by love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.